Last Sunday, we saw that we are in a war. We're in the war of the ages. We're in the study of the book of Jude. And last Sunday, we went through verses 1 through 4. And today, we're going to see verses 5 through 16. But what Jude tells us in this book, this little book, it's 25 verses. It's a little book. But it's just strong as can be. Because Jude is fired up. Jude is troubled. Jude wants to write to us about something sweet and warm. He says, I want to write to you about our common salvation in verse 3. But he's moved. He's moved to write to us about something that's cold and prickly, about combat, about warfare, because we are in the war of the ages, and Jude is concerned that Alex Garcia is utterly clueless about it, and that y'all are clueless, and that I am clueless that we are in spiritual combat. So he gets all fired up, and he grabs us by the lapel, and he says, listen up. We're in the war of the ages. You see, Christianity, especially in the West, has come to think that the spiritual life is about health, wealth, and prosperity, baby. It's all good. It's, it's, it's comfort and prosperity. And part of that is because the West, praise God, is very materially prosperous. And so somehow we've let that material prosperity creep into our theology. But the Bible says Christianity is about trials and tribulations and soldiering, Christian soldiering. That's why the apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, put on your body armor, the armor of God, and pick up your weapon, which is the sword of the spirit, the word of God, because we're in warfare. That hymn that we sang, a mighty fortress is our God. Remember it says, Lord Sabaoth is his name. It's not Sabbath, it's Sabaoth. It's the Hebrew word for armies. He's called the Lord of the host, Lord of hosts. It's an old English word for armies. It's a military term. That's the name, one of the names of Jesus Christ. It's a military term, Lord of the armies, because we are in the war of the ages. The spiritual life is not a playground. It's a battleground, and Jude wants us to know that. I read a quote from Stephen Krafchick about the book of Jude last Sunday. Let me read it again because it's so true. He says, Jude is not an epistle one reads for comfort or to ponder esoteric questions about theology. It is a letter of challenge. It is a letter of outrage. And we are unaccustomed to this much passion. That's what Stephen Krafchick says, and it's so true. Jude is a call to arms. It is a call to arms to ready ourselves for the attack because we live in a world that is hostile to God and hostile to his Christ. And the weapon of choice of the world is false teaching. It's apostasy. Apostasy just means falling away from the faith or rebelling against God. The weapon of choice is false teaching. And false teachers... Paul says in Acts 20, verses 29 through 31, are like savage wolves that creep in. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 7, 15. 
False prophets are like savage wolves. So Jude says, be on the alert. Be on the alert. So in verses 5 through 16, which is what we're going to look at today, we're going to see two things. The first thing we're going to see is if we get involved in false teaching, we digest it, we metabolize, metabolize it, we make it part of who we are, and we live like it because our actions just follow our thoughts. What does the scripture say? So a man thinks, so he is. As a man thinks, so he is. And so God wants our thoughts because our actions just follow those thoughts. So the first thing we're going to see from Jude is that if we follow false teachers, we're going to be destroyed. And Jude's going to lay out three different examples of total destruction. That's the first thing we're going to see. If we follow false teachers, we're going to be destroyed. And the second thing we're going to see is the characteristics of false teachers. Jude's going to th show us three things about false teachers for us to watch out, for us to recognize, to look for. Arrogance, rejection of authority, and lust. Those are the three things that Jude's going to unpack for us when he's describing to us false teachers. And he moves those around. He flips those around. Sometimes he'll say lust first and then arrogance and then rejection of authority. Or Sometimes he'll move them around. But those are the three things that he's going to show us. So let's look at verse 4 for context here. That was the last verse we saw last Sunday. Jude 4, the second to last book in the Bible. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The certain persons there are false teachers, and this is what has Jude all fired up. In the next few verses, Jude's going to explain to us that if we get involved in false teaching, if we follow false teachers, then we're going to be destroyed. And look at, look at the end of this verse. He says, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness, that's sexual immorality, and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Those two things always go hand in hand. Rejection of God and sexual immorality. Those two things are linked. Paul explains that to us in Romans 1, and Jude says it here in verse 4. Those are the three. These are the three categories of groups. These are the three groups of folks who Jude wants us to see, and he's going to give examples of all three of these, who have gotten involved in false teaching and were destroyed. Jude's first going to tell us about believers, Israelite believers, who were destroyed by God because they got into false teaching. Then he's going to tell us about angels, rebellious angels, who have been reserved for eternal destruction because they got into false teaching. And then he's going to tell us about Sodom and Gomorrah, the unbelievers of Sodom and Gomorrah who got into false teaching and were destroyed. The destruction, though, of these three groups is different. For believers, believers can't lose their salvation. They're in the double grip of God, Jesus says in John, in the grip of the Father, in the grip of the Son, forever in the love of God. So believers can't lose their salvation. These Israelite believers, we're going to see, they didn't lose their salvation. You can't lose your salvation as a believer. But they were destroyed on the earth by God because they were in false teaching. That, in other words, let me be more clear. They were killed by God as punishment 
because they were involved in false teaching. The rebellious angels, they are an eternal punishment. Unbelievers from Sodom and Gomorrah, they are an eternal punishment. So two of these categories, number two and number three, angels, rebellious angels and unbelievers from Sodom and Gomorrah, they're an eternal punishment. These believing Israelites, their, their destruction was on the earth and that they were taken out by God. So let's look at verse 5, the first category, which is false teachers, the Israelite believers getting into false teaching. Jude says, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Jude's talking about the Israelites, right? I mean, they're in Egypt. They put the blood of the lamb over the mantle. In, in faith, they do that. They are saved. God does all of these miraculous events to free them from the grip of Pharaoh, to get them out from underneath the boot of Pharaoh, because they've been imprisoned in Egypt for hundreds of years. He brings the frogs. He brings the blood in the Nile. He brings all of these miracles to show his power. Because the most powerful man over the face of the earth was Pharaoh, and he was nothing to the God who is. And he did all those miracles to show his love, his love for his people. But what happened? Did the Israelites say, oh, sweet, I believe, not only do I, do, do I trust God for my salvation, but I'm going to trust him for everything that's going to happen from here. No, they didn't. They didn't. And so Numbers 14, 22 talks about, God says, 10 times, 10 times you didn't trust my promises after they were, they were freed from Egypt, right? So they're freed from Egypt. They're at the banks of the Red Sea. Up come the chariots of the Pharaoh who's just been humiliated by God because he, he disobeyed God and wouldn't let his people go. Up come the chariots and the Israelites say, you brought us out here to kill us. Moses, what they're really saying is, God, you brought us out here to kill us because Moses is the servant of God. And so Moses says, stand down, stand back, and watch the deliverance of, of the Lord. So what does the Lord do? He parts the Red Sea. They go through. The chariots are hammered by the water. They all die. And so that's one of the ten. I'm just going to name a few. Then they're out in the wilderness, and when they're in the wilderness, they say to, to Moses, you took us out here to kill us. Because there's not enough water for us. God, God did all those amazing things in Egypt. But you know what? I'm not sure he can give us water. The next one was, I'm not sure he can give us food. You brought us out here to kill us because there's not enough. We, we, we want more food. The next one was, Moses goes up to the mountain to get the word of God. And they're down in the valley. And Moses takes a while. So they're like, you know what? Let's have the, the, the King James says, they rose up to play, but that's a real nice way of saying they were engaged in sexual immorality. Maybe I'll say it that way. It was, it was, they had an orgy, all right, and they got involved in idolatry with the golden calf while Moses is up on the mountain getting the, the commandments from God. Another act of not, promising the, uh, not following the promises of God. In other words, getting into false teaching. And then finally, when they're about to enter the land, the land that they've been freed from Egypt to enter into, the land of milk and honey. They send in the 12 spies, 10 come back and say, no way. 
I know God freed us from Egypt, but he's not going to let us go in that land because those giants that are in there, we're like grasshoppers. They're going to squish us like, like little bugs. We're not going in. Ten of the spies said that. Two of them did not. And so God said, no mas, no mas, no more, no more. And so after that final act of getting into false teaching, of believing the ten spies who said, God's not going to deliver for us, after that final act, God said, I'm going to destroy you. Not their eternal life, because they can't lose their eternal life, but they were destroyed in the wilderness because God said, you don't, you don't get to go in the, into the promised land. You're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and your carcasses will be strewn around the wilderness. You are not going to enter into the promised land. And that's what Jude's talking about here, where he says, subsequently, those who did not believe, they were destroyed. The second group that Jude warns us about is angels. What Jude's saying is not even the Israelites, the chosen people of God, were exempt from destruction when they got into false teaching. So Jude says angels, angels, not even powerful angels are exempt from destruction when they get into false teaching. He says in verse 6, And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Angels were created directly from the hand of God in beauty and majesty, and they had access to the abode of God in its majesty, in its light, in its glory. But these angels rebelled against God. They abandoned their proper abode, and so they have been imprisoned in darkness. And what does Jude say at the end here? For the, for the judgment of the great day. The scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament runs through the scripture this concept of the day. Sometimes it calls it the day, that day, the great day, the day of the Lord. It's all referring to the day of the Lord. It's the day of reckoning. Because there is a day of reckoning. It's the day where the Lord settles accounts. It's the day where the Lord intervenes in history in, in extraordinary ways, either judges, like for this case of the rebellious angels, or blesses. And verse 1 of Jude said, we are kept for Christ Jesus, kept for him. These angels are kept, what does Jude say? He has kept in eternal bonds. They're kept for the day of the Lord, the extraordinary judgment that the Lord will impose. But as children of God, we are kept. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says we are kept for Christ Jesus. And the way that Greek works, it, it, you can say kept by Christ Jesus, kept for Christ Jesus. It's the same concept. We're kept for the day of the Lord, the blessing, praise God, the blessing part of the day of the Lord. But make no mistake about it. The Lord of the armies will come, and there will be a reckoning, and he will win the war. And one day, one day we'll go home, and we will lay down our weapons, and we will rest. We'll go home from the war, and we'll rest. We're not there today. Today we're in the war of the ages, and that's what gets Jude so fired up. 
Jude's point is that not even angels are exempt. These higher beings, right? I mean, it's God, angels, humans, animals. That's the hierarchy. Not even these higher beings, angels, are exempt from destruction when they get into false teaching. Now, what's interesting here is Jude doesn't tell us what they did, right? I mean, Jude doesn't tell us what these angels did. He just says they did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. And so theologians disagree on what exactly did these angels do to get them incarcerated, to get them in jail, in eternal bonds. Some theologians say, well, look, they joined the rebellion of Satan where Satan rebelled against God. Other theologians say, no, they, referring to, to Genesis 6, 1 through 4, they had sex with women. And Genesis, 1 through, Genesis 6, 1 through 4 talks about the Nephilim. That's the, that's the Hebrew word, the Nephilim, the great men of old. The, the, some, translators, some translations translated as the heroes of old. And so there are these two schools of thought I lean towards the Nephilim school of thought in the sense that angels, these angels, abandoned their abode because they're, they're, they're not at the level of human beings. They're above human beings. Obviously, they're not God, but they abandoned their abode. And so I lean towards the, the view that it is the, the sin that these angels committed is that they had sex with women, referring to Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And the reason I say that, the reason I lean there, is because angels, fallen angels, are not incarcerated. They are functioning on the earth. You just, I mean, the Gospels are full of all of these events of demonology, demons functioning on the earth. And the other reason I lean towards the view that these angels... Uh, committed sin in the sense of having sex with women is because the next verse that we're going to read ties these angels' activity to the sexual immorality of the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. Last Sunday, I referenced the topic of homosexuality in anticipation of verse 7 because verse 7 talks about the men of Sodom and Gomorrah and homosexuality is a hot-button issue in our culture today. It's, it's actually Gay Pride Month, and I didn't time it this way. Um, but it, it's a hot-button, hot-button issue. And so, so let me spend a few minutes on this topic. It's a topic that engenders great anger, right? I mean, it, it, if someone talks about this topic consistent with the Word of God, it is deemed offensive, right? If we talk about this topic and we say homosexuality is okay, homosexuality is, you know, they, they, they really don't use the phrase alternate lifestyle anymore. That, that, that phrase is passe. It's, it's just okay. It's, it's on a par with heterosexual marriage. That's, that, that's the message of the culture. If you say that, that's not offensive, right? No one's offended when you say, oh, the culture, I should say, is not offended when you say, that's okay behavior. That behavior is on the same par as heterosexual behavior. But if you come over here and you say, well, this book says that that behavior is actually an offense to God. It's a sin, like adultery, 
is a sin, like lying is a sin, like cheating is a sin. Now that's offensive, very offensive to the culture. And the reason that is, is because we've redefined love. We've redefined love and hate. The culture has a different standard for love and, and hate, right? Since the culture has removed God from the analysis, God, we don't need God. We come from, from monkeys, right? We don't need God. We're, we come from evolution, from the goo to the zoo to you. I mean, we don't need God, the culture says. So God's out of the thinking, right? But we're still made in the image of God. So we still, we still need love. And we need to define love. We need to explain love somehow. So the, so the way the godless culture says it is horizontally. I'm not loving if I say something that offends you. I'm not loving if I say something that hurts your feelings, even if it's true. Actually, whether it's true or not is, is, is irrelevant. If it is something that hurts your feelings, then the culture would say, I'm not loving. I'm saying hate speech. But that's because we've defined love this way. We've got to define, we've got to go vertical first before we understand what love is because God is love. He doesn't just have an object of his love. He doesn't just love us. His very essence, his very nature is love. Can I say he has the monopoly on love? He defines love. And so we have to look vertical first to understand love, and then we can express that love horizontally. And so what does God say? The God who, is the, who has the monopoly on love, he says in 1 Corinthians 13, that great passage that you hear read at, at, at weddings, love is patient, love is kind, and there's a long laundry list, and one of the items in the list is love does not rejoice in unrighteousness but it rejoices with truth, with truth. So where do we find truth? Do we find truth in a culture that has jettisoned God, or do we find truth in the book, in the Word of God? We find it in the Word of God. So let's look at the passages that the Word of God has that deal with this topic. Jude 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, the these there are the fallen angels from verse 6. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. This is the third group. Right? The first group was Israelite believers who got into false teaching. The second group was rebellious angels who followed the false teaching of whoever led them in, in that particular sin. This third group is unbelievers, the unbelieving men of Sodom and Gomorrah. The false teaching that they got into was rejection of God and homosexuality. Rejection of God and sexual immorality always go hand in hand. They're linked they're linked. And so Jude says here that they are reserved for eternal punishment, not because they were homosexuals. God loves the homosexual. He hates homosexuality. God loves the adulterer. He hates adultery. God loves the cheater. He hates cheating. So they're reserved for eternal punishment, not because of the sin of homosexuality. They're reserved for, these men of Sodom and Gomorrah are reserved for eternal punishment because they are un, 
believers. And to be clear, any person, believer or unbeliever, can commit any sin, including the sin of homosexuality. But it is a sin, right? I mean, despite what the media sells you, despite what politicians sell you, despite what educators sell you, despite what advertisers sell you, just, just, just put an ad on, on TV, and every ad has this message in it. Sometimes it's overt, sometimes it's subliminal, but there's a message that they're communicating to us, a message that contradicts the Word of God. And so, despite what all of these tell you, and despite, and, I, and, and this is the one that hurts the most to say, despite what some in the church, the church universal tell you, it is an offense to God, like every other sin. But they are more offended that someone would say it is an offense to God than they are concerned. They're more concerned that someone says it's an, it's an offense to God then they're concerned that God is offended by it. But it is a sin like every other sin. Now, uh, sins have different consequences, right? Going 56 miles an hour in a 55 million mile an hour zone when you're driving, that has a different consequence than adultery. That has a different consequence than homosexuality. The point is, Jude is warning us against following false teachers who encourage rejection of God, false teachers who encourage homosexuality. Let's, let's just say it the way it is. Let's say it like it's in the book. Jude is, in, is warning us about those false teachers. Let's look at actually what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and uh, we'll try and move through this fairly quickly. Genesis 19. These are two angels who came to Sodom in the appearance of men. Genesis 19.1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face on the ground, to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no. But we will spend the night in the square Verse 3, yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them, meaning sexual relations. Verse 6, but Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, now Lot's about to act wickedly in what he's about to say. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. Verse 9. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one has come in as an alien, and already he is acting like a judge. What is the most popular verse in the culture? They wouldn't cite it as Matthew 7, 1, but it's judge not lest you be judged. Right? No one, 
It used to be John 3.16, right? You see it at football games. John 3.16, right, on, on, on the camera, right, right behind the goalpost. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be, and, excuse me, for the Lord, for God so loved his, um, his son, for God, thank you, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Until I got a brain freeze there. John 3.16, but that's not the most popular verse. Right? The most popular verse is, judge lest not you be judged. Don't judge lest, lest, lest you be judged. Thank you. But wait a second. Wait a second. Jesus says in Matthew 7.15, Beware, be on the alert for false prophets who creep in like savage wolves. So we need to be discerning. We need to say, whoa, 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 whoa. That's a false prophet. That's not a false prophet. That's false teaching. That's not false teaching. That's a sin. That's not a sin. So when, when Jesus says, don't judge lest you, be ju- lest you be judged, he's not saying don't discern between right and wrong. He's saying don't judge wrongly. Don't judge hypocritely in a hypocritical fashion, right? When you've got a log in your eye and you say, oh, hey, man, you've got a speck in your eye. Jesus is saying don't judge wrongly. But what's happening here? Someone who's involved in intense sin, the first thing they do is say, ah, da, 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 no, 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 you can't judge me. You can't call my activity sin. So that's what these men are doing. This one came in as an alien, and already he's acting like a judge here in verse 9. <clears throat> now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. Verse 10, but the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. And then later in Genesis 19, we see that God, because of the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, destroyed the cities by raining down fire and brimstone from heaven. Another passage that is very direct on this topic is Leviticus 18.22, which says, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. That's pretty clear, right? I mean, there's some passages in the Bible about some topics where you say, I'm not sure. Like, did the angels, how did they abandon their abode? Did they commit this sin or that sin. It's not 100% clear. And, and that's okay that some parts are not 100% clear to us. Well, this one's pretty clear. This one's pretty clear. And then, finally, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul uses very graphic language to describe the unrighteousness of this particular act. I'm citing the Net Bible here. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, passive homosexual partners, practicing homosexuals, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, the verbally abusive, and swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the reason I say this is graphic is because Paul uses two types of Greek words. Malakas to describe the, how do I say, the... um, in the act of homosexual intercourse, the, the, the passive partner. And then he uses the Greek word arsenikoites to describe the initiator in the act 
of homosexual intercourse. He's saying both, both activities in this very graphic description, the whole deal, the whole activity, whether you're on this side of the activity or on this side of the activity, the whole thing is unrighteous. That's the the, the word there in verse 9. It's unrighteous. Back to our passage in Jude. Jude 7, he's talking about gross immorality, and he's talking about when after strange flesh. That, that is the reference to the sin of homosexuality. And Jude says they're made an example, exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of an eternal fire. The unbelievers of Sodom and Gomorrah were exhibited as an example in two ways. On earth, <clears throat> excuse me, God destroyed them to make an example for future generations that that sin is very serious to God. He doesn't take it lightly. It's true, all sin is an offense to God, but some sins have greater consequences. And so God's, God made an example of them for future generations, including the generation in the year 2018 in the United States of America. So that's one example that Jude's talking about here. The other example is in eternity. As unbelievers, these men are reserved for punishment of eternal fire. Again, not because they committed that particular act. When you're saved, God looks at you not as a homosexual, not as a drunkard, not as a liar, not as a cheater, not as an adulterer. He looks at you as the son or the daughter of of God. Right? He looks at you as saved with the righteousness of Christ. But when someone doesn't believe in Christ, now there's, God looks at them as their sin because they haven't been washed. They haven't been washed in the blood of Christ. And that is clearly laid out. Paul, in that same passage, unpacks that in verse 11. He says, some of you once lived this way. In other words, some of you, you used to be an idolater. You used to be an adulterer. You used to be a passive homosexual partner. You used to be a practicing homosexual. You used to be a thief, greedy, drunkard. But not anymore. Not anymore. What does he say? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So it's not an immutable characteristic is the point. It's not an immutable characteristic to be, a, to be anything in this list, to be a drunkard, to be an idolater, to be a practicing homosexual, to be a passive homosexual, to be a thief, to be greedy, to be any of these things. They're not who we are as human beings. So when someone says, I am this way and it is just who I am, the word of God says, no. No, you're so much bigger than that. And God has made you for a grander purpose than this counterfeit behavior, this counterfeit sexual behavior that you're involved in. Well, that was verses 5 through 7. 5 through 7 is about not getting into false teaching, not following false teachers, because otherwise we'll be destroyed. Now Paul shifts, excuse me, Jude shifts gears. He shifts gears, leaving these three categories of Israelite believers, rebellious angels, and the unbelievers of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he shifts gears, shifts gears 
to Jude 8, which is the false teachers themselves, the characteristics of false teachers. He says, this is what I want you to watch out for. Three things, arrogance, rejection of authority, and lust, because those three things are characteristics of false teachers. And as I said earlier, he'll move those around, but it's those three. Here's what he says. Yet in the same way, these men, false teachers, also by dreaming, defile the flesh, there's lust, reject authority, there's rejection of authority, and revile angelic majesties. That's arrogance. Here are the three characteristics of false teachers that Jude wants us to remember, to watch out for, because we're in the war. And the weapon of choice of false teachers is apostasy. It is deception. Jude 9. But Michael the, angel, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. This is an example of humility versus arrogance. The false teachers respect no authority but their own. Michael, the great archangel, Michael, when approaching the devil, because the devil was created, Ezekiel 28, as the anointed cherub, and he still has great authority. He still has access to the throne room of God, Job one, he hasn't been cast in the lake of fire yet. That's not till Revelation 20. And so Michael, the great archangel, when he approaches and he is in combat with Satan, he doesn't rely on his own authority. He appeals to the authority of the Lord, which is the absolute authority. And he does that in humility versus the false teachers who are arrogant. So what, what Jude is doing here is he's giving us an example of humility versus arrogance of false teachers. Jude 10. But these men reviled things, the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. So you see at the beginning of the verse, you've got reviling. We don't use that word revile very often, right? I mean, when was the last time you heard somebody say, don't revile me? I mean, we don't use that word, but it, it means to, to criticize intensely, to, to, to ridicule, to mock. And so this first category here, it's arrogance. It's rejection of authority. Those two things are closely linked. And then the second category about, and these things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, there's lust. Richard Bauckham says that Jude is really comparing these false teachers to animals who are in heat, dominated by their fleshly desires. And so we have all three characteristics here. Rejection of authority, arrogance, and lust. Jude 11, woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. That's arrogance. Cain was self-righteous, so he killed his brother. And for pay, they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam. That's lust. Money lust and sexual lust. Balaam got paid by the king of Moab to get the Moabite ladies to seduce the Israelite men. And so you've got both money lust and sexual lust there. And the phrase goes on, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Korah was somebody who challenged, who created this mutiny, this rebellion against God's servants, Moses and Aaron. Verse 12. These are the men who are 
hidden reefs in your love feast. Love feast was a, was a reference to the communion, the communal meal that they would have that, that uh, Pastor Bruce referenced uh, in, in the early church, the communal meal where they would also have the Lord's Supper. But these are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Verse 13, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. So the false teachers here are unbelievers, reserved for eternal condemnation. Verse 14, in closing here, we're going to wrap up verse 14 through 16. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly. Notice what Jude says over and over. He uses this word ungodly. Watch what he does. Verse 15, to execute judgment upon all, to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This description here in verse 14 and 15 is the day of the Lord. There is a day where the Lord settles accounts. There is a day of reckoning. And that's what Jude is talking about here. Jude 16. These are grumblers finding fault. There's rejection of authority again. Rejection of authority, finding fault where there is no fault. These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. There's the second characteristic lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining advantage. I'm going to manipulate you for my advantage, and I'm going to flatter you for my advantage. That's arrogance. And so you've got all three characteristics, again, of false teachers in this verse. Rejection of authority, arrogance, and lust. In closing here, J. Vernon McGee said that today, and he was a pastor of a prior generation in America, he said today we are witnessing the destruction of the church from the inside. It's an inside job, he says. Jude's theme today has been about false teaching and false teachers. Satan changed his strategy with respect to the church long ago, right? When the church, the early church, they were persecuted. Satan's strategy was kill them. And the more he persecuted them, the more he killed them, the bigger the church grew, which is the way it is actually outside the West today. So Satan changed his strategy. If you can't beat him, well, join him. So he joined the church centuries ago. And he has slid his false teachers into the church universal. And so Jude's theme today was about false teaching. Don't follow false teaching, otherwise you'll be destroyed. And no one is exempt, not believers, not unbelievers. We can't lose our salvation, but there's destruction for getting into false teaching for believers, unbelievers, and rebellious angels. And the other thing that Jude showed us today is watch out. Watch out for the characteristics of false teachers, which are arrogance, rejection of authority, and lust. My friends, we are in the war of the ages. So put on your body armor and pick up your weapon, 
which is the sword of the Spirit. It's a defensive weapon. It's the truth of God, the divine truth of God. And two Sundays from now, Jude is going to tell us about more defensive weapons. Father, we thank you for our time together. We ask that you challenge us by these things and give us courage. Give us courage when we are confronted with false teaching, the false teaching that bombards our kids, grandkids, all of us, we as adults. Give us courage to be loving, but to rely on the love that you describe in the scripture, which is merciful, yet it's full of truth. So challenge us to not compromise your truth and to not surrender the ground of your truth. And we pray these things in his majesty's name, the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we give all the praise and the glory. Amen.